Let me thank the organizers of this event for inviting me to speak on this day on the topic restructuring the national economy, the need for a paradigm shift. When I was getting ready to, so I decided to approach it in the manner of a debate, an assertion that there is a need for a paradigm shift. So what is this paradigm which has to be shifted? What are its dimensions? What are the reasons why the paradigm needs to change? And what are some of the pathways along which we can proceed as part of moving away from the dominant paradigm? I assume that the context for this lecture and discussion, of course, is the unprecedented national crisis which is the worst since the long crisis of the late 1970s to about 1983, and definitely the worst crisis of the Fourth Republic. We've gone from a country which aspired to be a Ghana beyond aid to being a country which is desperate for aid. There's widespread destitution as a result of the cost of living crisis, even the, middle, even the middle classes who normally are not heard on these issues of hardship. We saw when people's investments were confiscated through the imposition of a domestic debt restructuring, even though presented as a voluntary exercise, that confiscation saw unprecedented expressions of dissent from the middle classes. That, of course, was an indication for me of the crisis of legitimacy that the current government faces, but also an indication of deepening cracks of the fault lines which have been developing the foundations of the republic over the past 40 years. Alongside this, of course, we've had visible and ostentatious accumulation and we know that there's widespread inequality you know, in the country. The rural-urban divide in terms of livelihoods had closed a bit, but there's deep poverty in the countryside. And inequality across the country is worsening. And in a certain sense, this crisis, if we take a long-term view of it, is the latest, maybe one of the more profound, of the cyclical crisis that we have had in the post-colonial period. And I think the severity of the crisis, of course, the combination of international factors, domestic management, and leadership factors. In the wider sense, a small country like Ghana is affected by the international economy. In discussing a paradigm shift, it will be fuller to explore some of these international issues. But for the purposes of focus in the core lecture, I do not advert to the international trade investment and other issues, except to indicate you know, they, are, they are relevant and to situate the domestic issues. Maybe in the discussion period, we can address some of those issues. So the issue then of a paradigm shift, first, what does this term, paradigm shift, mean so as to 
in a certain sense, define the problematic, you know, the lecture is being invited to address. According to the ordinary dictionary definition, a paradigm shift is a fundamental change in the approach, in an approach or underlying assumptions of a situation. So this is what I've used to define how I will proceed. A final point that I'll make, of course, about the context is that Ghana has been celebrated as a country which has gone through cyclical celebration and despair. This morning, I got a call from a friend in Kenya with whom I'm always arguing. Say, you Ghana people, your situation, I said, Take your time. We, we live there. We, what we know, you don't know. So, but you don't know because where we sit, we can see that your things are very good. So I told him I was coming to give this lecture and I explained to him. He said, oh, this Ghana pa that we all look up to. How? Because we Ghanaians who have taken to taking the celebration as part of our identity. has been celebrated. It's a country which has gone through cyclical celebration and despair. This morning, I got a call from my friend in Kenya with whom I'm always arguing. Say, you Ghana people, your situation, I said, take your time. We, we live there, we, what we know, you don't know. So, but you don't know, because where we sit, we can see that your things are very good. So I told him I was coming to give this lecture, and I explained to him. He said, oh, this Ghana, pa, that we all look up to. How? Because we Ghanaians who have taken to taking the celebration as part of our identity. Wherever we go, you know, if it's on the Black Stars, they haven't won anything for a long time, but still we feel we are the best footballing country, you know, on the continent uh, and so on. Um, so that's the, just my preferatory remarks. So my, um, the thing then is, as I said, the topic asserts the need for a paradigm shift. Now what then do I see as a defining paradigm of the Ghanaian economy. I think the defining paradigm of the Ghanaian economy since colonial times, which has been refurbished in some degree, it's this is a primary commodity export dependent economy, which in some of our work in TWN, we have described as one centered on the export of a narrow basket of highly, hardly processed primary mineral and agricultural commodities with little or no domestic manufacturing, industrial capacity and the stagnation of the rural economy, leaving it with a low, with a low value end while the high value ends are captured outside the economy. If you look at the profile of Ghana's exports over the past 10 years and beyond, you find that cocoa, gold, and oil make up more than 80% of our exports and international trade makes up more than 40% of the country's GDP. 
when you have that size of international trade or economy, it makes you vulnerable to the volatilities and vicissitudes of the international economy. And of course, if you are exporting raw commodities, the volatilities of commodities are a key part of the landscape, and you import finished products. So the, you, you, you face challenges. It also means that, of course, the linkages between the sectors of your economy are weak. Okay? Uh, so the, the reproduction of primary commodity export dependence over, over years, of course, is, a, is, is, is not a, a self-determining process. It is perpetuated or transformed by the policy choices, the economic and political contestation within the country over its continuation or discontinuation among the beneficiaries and losers, as well as the internal balance of political and social forces. The primary commodity export dependence, in a certain sense, historically, has defined the parameters and the challenges for development and transformation in Ghana. Now, we can put that, uh, tra tra those challenges on a spectrum of responses, because if we look, different governments have responded differently to these challenges. I mean, they have responded from seeing it take Nkrumah, for example, who saw this as a fundamental obstacle to transformation and creating you know, a, a life for the Ghanaian people. Jerry Rawlings, when he came to power, saw the collapsed economy as something which was blamable on corruption and bad leadership, and all that was required was to clean it up, get some decent people, and everything would be all right. So his historic contribution was to refurbish this primary commodity export dependent economy and lay the foundation for the continuities that we have had since 1984. I like to needle my middle class friends, particularly those on the political right who hate Jerry Rawlings, that they owe him a debt of gratitude. Because contrary to their imagination, that the best leader of Jerry Rawlings is actually the founder of the modern Ghanaian economy. The person who completed the post-1966 school project of reversing everything Kumar tried to do, Jerry Rawlings, uh, Buzia, the NLC, they failed, but Rawlings succeeded. Maybe you should make an honorary member of the property-owning you know, classes. The, of course, the, there's nothing new or profound in describing uh, primary commodity exports uh, dependence in the Ghanaian context. I mean, this is a defining paradigm and constraint of almost all African economies, and there was a concern of all early post-colonial leaders, whether they saw themselves as African socialists, radical socialists, or capitalists. They all saw this as a primary challenge to overcome to advance uh, development. In the Ghanaian case, Nkrumah's seven-year development plan, which comprehensively tried to offer you know, a response to it, whatever you think about it, it's assumed that this thing needed to be taken as a problematic of development. 
and therefore all resources, institution building, human resource development should be determined by the solution to this problem. This is an important word because I would argue later on that what we have had since the refurbishment of primary commodities for dependents in the years of structural adjustment also took the business of building the kinds of institutions that you need for the neoliberal project seriously so that new institutions were built, old ones were transformed so as to advance this project. The curricular of educational institutions also were changed. I mean, if you take economics, for example, in the 60s and 50s, development economics was taken as a given. I asked somebody who studied economics in Ligon recently, do you know Arthur Lewis? He asked me who that was. Arthur Lewis drew up the 51 industrialization plan of Ghana, won the Nobel Prize, and is a founder of developing economics. But it tells you something also about the way curriculum curricula, you know, have changed, but that's part of the larger thing. And if you look at African, African programs, just a quick parenthesis, if you look at the seven-year development plan, an interesting thing, it embodies something which I think is worth noting. Nkrumah wrote the foreword to the seven-year development plan, and J.H. Mensah, who was the executive secretary of the planning commission, wrote the introduction. The reason I'm making this point is that J.H. Mensah is seen in today's generation as a man who of the MPP and therefore a simple binary. But in 1961, 62, 63, when the plan was drawn, being drawn, J.H. Mensah was the executive secretary of the planning commission. And that joint role forward introduction we can characterize as an indication of the nationalist compact which was agreed on the need for this transformation and across the continent of course many documents have captured this problem the lagos plan of action more recent than the uh, uh, the agenda 2063 of the african union organizations like UNCTAD was created with pressure from African countries as part of having to address this problem. And the calls for the new international economic order by developing countries was centered very much around this uh, tra transformation. And the problem of volatilities, which was noticed by all these, in a certain sense, our earliest post-colonial experience of it was when, in 1965, cocoa prices fell to a third or what the Nkrumah government had projected them to be as the basis for financing the seven-year development plan. That was the first time Ghana went to the IMF. But on the 22nd of February, it's interesting if you read this it's 1966 budget, Kwesia Mwakwanta gave an elaborate response to the IMF in a parliamentary statement why they would not accept the terms of the IMF. Two days later, the Nkrumah government was overthrown. The NLC came to power, and that program was accepted. So that was the beginning of our business with the IMF. Now, the, beyond Nkrumah, the cyclical effects of primary commodity dependence and its boom and bust 
We've experienced it throughout. The oil shocks in the mid-70s were an important part of the crisis that led many countries to turn to, uh, to, to, to the IMF and World Bank. Um, although the crisis was blamed on corruption, if you look at the data, really, I mean, over a 25-year period, the losses African countries got from terms of, from terms of trade erosion according to the World Bank in their book, An Africa, what is it, something 21st century, talks about the fact that Sub-Saharan Africa lost 120% of its gross domestic product as a result of this you know, global uh, uh, commodity problem. Rawlings's last two years were bedeviled by commodity fluctuations. Oil prices went up, gold prices went down. And there was a crisis. And that, of course, contributed, among other things, to their losing the election. President Kufour was the beneficiary of the commodity boom. Throughout this period, the commodity boom was driving up prices, as demand from Asia in particular you know, pushed prices up and up. But even he had a brief glitch when global food prices went up. And you know, we had a kind of, kind of wobble. Mills, the one time that the country enjoyed double-digit growth in the Mills period was the result of the combination of the beginning of oil exports and also high gold prices. So I'm just illustrating for you the fact that the commodity export dependence has structured you know, a number of you know, domestic choices. And is this same commodity boom which was the context for Ghana beginning Eurobond borrowing. President Kufour took the first Eurobond loan in his time and has become part of, as it were, the sources of financing with consequences as it's built up. There are questions to be asked, of course, about the basis on which those borrowings were done the calculation about management, the accountability for them, because the president, when he spoke recently in the State of the Nation address, said the monies were used to build infrastructure. But one of the realities of public finance management in our country is really the weak accountability that we have. So successive governments builds this thing up. I'm raising this point because the crisis of our international finance at the moment is not a single regime problem, it's a cumulative problem. It's a cumulative problem in two ways. One, the accumulation of the borrowing, and two, the accumulation of the consequences of the paradigm within which we are operating. As I, I said earlier, this is the, the deepest crisis we're having since 1975-83. Uh, that crisis under Jerry Rawlings was the moment when Ghana became the shining star for neoliberal reform in Africa. Just a quick thing about some of the stylized facts about those reforms. Trade and investment liberalization financial sector 
liberalization, export-led growth, the retrenchment of the states, and a focus on private sector-led growth, but also the transformation of the roles of the state and the building of new institutions and, the, of course, the adoption of new ideologies, as well as the reorientation of state cadre in terms of their function. A key part of that also was the attraction of foreign direct investment. You know, I actually brought a few slides, but I forgot to give it to the organizers, so I guess at this point I just have to press on. Um, the, the, the trend investment liberalization was allied to export-led growth because the investments came particularly into the extractive sector in that period, and very quickly it became one of the biggest areas. Finance was another area which opened up. So in the period since currently 70% of banks in Ghana are owned by foreign firms, and in that process also publicly owned banks were either sold off or dismantled, particularly the investment banks. They either became retail banks or they were dismantled, with consequences, of course, for the possibilities of lending to certain uh, sectors. I think the FDR attraction is important because there's an assumption in the market-led growth thing. FDI was expected to maybe also replace what a role that the state played historically you know, in economic uh, development. And we know that there were across-the-board incentives offered to foreign capital. Yes, in the back. Okay, that's right. Yeah, thanks. Even though there's a lot of evidence from many studies that these incentives make no difference to whether people will come or not. I mean, Angola in the heat of the Civil War provided protection for American companies. The U.S. was arming Savimbi. Its companies were drilling oil in Uganda. In Angola, the Angolan army was providing protection for the American firms to drill the oil so that they would both benefit. As you can see at that point, at that point, the capital was not ideological. It just wanted a profit. You know. And we did a lot of that in all the sectors whether it's in the privatizations, whether in the extractive sector, you know, there were fire sales or public assets, and also all kinds of incentives were, were offered. I mean, a reflection of the recent decision to consolidate the incentives regime and to try to reduce the cost to the public treasury. So this has led to really a strong dominance of foreign capital in key sectors of the economy in the extractive sector, in high productivity services, telecom, in finance, in large-scale retail, and even manufacturing. One dimension, too, of the financial sector liberalization, which is worthy of note, is if you look at the rate of return for the foreign, for foreign banks in Ghana. It's almost 
three times what the, the average in other places. So Ghana is a good place to do business. And the outflows, of course, are reflected in what the, 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 the leakage, because a large foreign investor presence in your economy with commitment to liberalize inflows and outflows in a situation where you are, not get, you are getting very little inflows on foreign investment, on services provision outside your economy. You can only hope that the few Ghanaians who are laboring outside through their remittances might be able to balance you know, uh, some of the thing on your, on, your, on your capital account. So foreign investment, whilst it has brought injection of capital, we like, I mean, if you listen to the discussion about the extractive sector, it's always in terms of we have attracted so much investment. There is not a balance sheet of what that means. I mean, I'll come to this point in a this is the, uh, I talked about the, the exports uh, earlier, so that's, that, that, that's it, yeah. Um, the, the, the state retrenchment that I spoke about, I've indicated some of its consequences. As I went aside with the, the, the discussion from the Bank of Ghana, maybe I can use the Bank of Ghana to make a point. I mean, the relationship between economic policy making and the central bank in the earlier post-colonial period where we might talk about the state seeing itself having a more developmental role. It's completely different from what it is now. I remember when I was working for the PNDC, I had the privilege of speaking with Mr. Kwesia Mwapanta a few times. He used to be deputy governor in the Bank of Ghana and so on. And his ideas about the role of the bank, you know, in terms of driving development. It's completely different from the kind of, uh, as it, what, what I might call the myth of the independent central bank focused on inflation targeting. Because in other countries, actually, I know that in the U.S., the Fed is interested in employment. In Asia, central banks have a range of interests because they see a development responsibility. Even if they are independent, what they focus on, you know, it's a, it's a kind of condition. But I dare say that they, they focus on, uh, on, 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 uh, on inflation is, is a reflection, too, of the, the, the grip of monetarism, you know, in, uh, in, in, in sections of economic policy uh, in, in Ghana. Um, I will now discuss the two sectors where, which have been at the, cent the two real productive sectors which have been pillars of this commodity export dependence, agriculture and the extractive sector, as experienced you know, in this period and the implications for where we are. Now, agriculture is the historic pillar of primary commodity export dependence in Ghana. It is true that when the colonialists came, they were interested in everything. The Gold Coast, Elmina, they came looking for gold. But as a settled colony, the, the, what became prominent very early on, of course, was cocoa. So 
On one hand, we celebrate the Tekwashi and the humble Ghanaian peasant whose industry created cocoa. But they left us with a, a legacy which is problematic. But whilst the Tekwashi and others were building the cocoa industry so that they could export to be able to expand their own economic situation and also be able to get access to the merchandise that the, the firms were bringing, the colonial government had its vision about the place of the Gold Coast and Coco's place as one of the basket of raw materials to the, to the metropolis. We celebrate the Tekwashi. Ghanaians, some of us also like to celebrate Gordon Gajisbeck, you know, as a benign colonial governor. I would argue that actually, Gajisbeck was probably the silk glove on the mailed fist of the colonial project. And inside that mailed fist were the people who were clear what colonialism was about. And one of those people that we tend not to know about, I think it's important to know. William Tadhope was a governor, was a director of the Gold Coast Agricultural Department from 1907 to 1924. He laid the foundations of state engagement in agriculture. And I have a quote from him, which if he came from his grave today, he'd be proud that his legacy persists. In 1910, Tadhope said, in European countries and America, one of the aims of an agricultural department is to experiment, to educate, and to advise farmers, thus assisting them to produce large and good crops, which for the most part are grown for home consumption. The aims of a tropical agricultural department are similar, with this difference, that to be economically successful, those crops which produce articles for export receive the most attention. So the colonial agri department set out to do this. And third hope to international markets, extend from extension support, inputs, annual raising of international credits for farm purchases, is almost a state within the state. And there's an ideology around cocoa which makes it almost untouchable in any discussion of agriculture. Throughout the period, there have been all kinds of efforts by different governments. I will not elaborate. I'm making it kind of a generic because in totality, these efforts have not made a dent on the marginal status of other crops in the Ghanaian economy. There have been fitful attempts. I mean, there have been efforts at some non-traditional agricultural export, fitful supports to produce for the domestic market, and there has been increased production over the past 40 years since structural adjustment due to general economic policies rather than systematic or focused interest in status of other crops in the Ghanaian economy. There have been fitful attempts, I mean, there have been efforts at some non-traditional agricultural export, fitful supports to produce
for the domestic market, and there has been increased production over the past 40 years since structural adjustment due to general economic policies rather than systematic or focused interest in any agricultural value chain or crop, or like, of, like uh, value chain either in crop or livestock, despite the rising food import bill. I remember the work we did about 15 years ago with the Poultry Farmers Association, who showed that in terms of cost of production, they were competitive. They offered a vision of poultry in the agricultural value chain, from feed to school feeding, where you know agricultural inputs and how the market could be developed. When it became big enough, you can get processing. Because people buy one drumstick. Very few poor people will buy a whole chicken. So unless it is cut up to be competitive, it's difficult. So they, they had a plan. They toed and froed, and this was part of the work we did within the context of our campaign against the impact of the EU's economic partnership agreements. They did not succeed. I was reading a Dutch report yesterday on poultry in Ghana, and it makes the point, it's looking for Dutch opportunities, of course. It makes the point that today, only layers laying eggs are the, the viable part, really, of Ghanaian poultry. The meat part, the broiler part, is done. So the imports have got their base. This is just an example about uh, an area. So we all know that we have very limited agro-processing, problems with credit. I was looking at uh, the ESA's uh, annual economic report using figures from the Bank of Ghana, and if you look at credit to agriculture over the years, the highest annual supply of credit since between 2010 and 2019 was 6.13% of total lending, and it fell as low as 3.3 in 2014. That's it. Two-thirds of government spending on agriculture goes to the cocoa industry. In agriculture, including cocoa, successive Ghanaian governments have avoided dealing with the question of land relations. This mass extensive land insecurity involving migrants and even you know, indigenous people. Women have a huge problem in terms of access to land. In, in, in agriculture, and this is very tied up really with the compact successive governments have with chieftaincy. Because across the country, chiefs have turned what are nominally communal lands into private lands that they control. So although there's a, a thing about registering interest, it doesn't really address this root question of land tenure reform in Ghana. The countries that Ghanaians like to point to as a Asian examples for us, in all of them, apart from Singapore, which didn't have, that's not agriculture, all of them, tenure reform specific to their context was carried out and laid the basis for security, increase in productivity, access to credits, and so on and so forth. So if you are going to crack the agrarian question in Ghana, 
addressing tenure relations is unavoidable. And of course, tenure relations is a political issue also. But if we don't deal with it, rural poverty, and even some of the problems in the beloved cocoa industry will not go away. We also know that there are a lot of problems in cocoa itself. Because cocoa, one of the dirty secrets of the cocoa industry is that historically, it's been a great vector of deforestation because farmers are looking for fresher soil. And as that virgin frontier has diminished, productivity from the uh, output has, has dropped. So how to keep it going is a problem. And uh, secondly, there's a lot of poverty, cost of inputs, all kinds of things. So we have a situation where really, periodically, the Ghana government has subsidized the cocoa industry, something which, apart from episodic, uh, what you call uh, fertilizer and so on, no other commodity gets. The push to get the big companies, the buyers to pay a li uh, living income differential is running into all kinds of problems because there's resistance. So here we have a crop which is, but we can pose the question, can we imagine a long term of this country where we are not pushing for one million tons in output, but we accept that cocoa is a crop from which farmers can diversify, but that we have enough of a cocoa industry that can support value addition. We need to turn our imagination to that as part of thinking about the future of the agricultural sector. Cocoa takes up 28% of the, the, the agricultural land. But as I said, most of the uh, public attention you know, is, uh, is to that, to that crop. I'll move on to the extractive sector. The difference between the extractives and agriculture is, of course, agriculture is a, is a renewing thing that people farm seasonally and so on. Extractives are non-renewable resources. They are publicly owned, vested in the state on all of us our behalf. But in practice, our extractive sector has been run as a fiefdom of the executive. And the extractive sector is a very particular example of the ways in which raw material commodity export dependence leads to a resource intensity of growth, even agriculture, because it's not, we're expanding in terms of land area. You need more resources to, 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 to produce output. Um, in, in, in mining, with very little value addition and services connected with it, of course, it is the volume and hopefully higher prices that brings the return. So that resource intensity of a non-renewable resource is a particular challenge in terms of being able to claim its economic benefits, not only to the current generation, but also future generations who are part of the owning group. And because if we add the environmental externalities, they have to be sure that they are getting all these, uh, all these uh, benefits. Now, if you look at the, the sector, the one thing which is striking is that when we found oil, and then oil and gas, there was excitement, you know. 
even before we knew the volume. I remember President Kufo saying that we'll become an Asian tiger, a kind of a mixed metaphor and so on. Um, and people were looking forward to large revenues that will transform the country. That sector has become a zone of patronage and mismanagement. Okay, and there are many examples that can be given. Cosmos was an early example of uh, the, a pioneer producer. Actually, the Cosmos deal is considered by many in the industry to be the worst the country has signed. If you compare it to the Talo deal, which is in the same field, the, it is just calculated that the revenue benefits to the country from the Talo deal was going to be four billion more than the Cosmos deal. Okay. There were some people who had a 2.5% carried interest in the Cosmos deal who benefited. Some people claim that there are some politically connected people who are beneficiaries of this. I have no evidence to support it, but there's a strong public perception to that effect. The government also in relation to the Sankofa gas field, we got political infighting. There's a period when Ghana was paying 25 to, between 25 and 32 million dollars a month because we are signed up to take gas for which we are not prepared to take. So under the agreement, we have to be paying, you know, for, for, the, for the gas to any, for the gas that we're not taking. Recently, it was disclosed that a firm called Gensa Energy Holdings has been given a 60% discount on gas. It is buying from Ghana Gas, which it is using to generate energy for large-scale mines. There's the famous ACA deal, which, again, has been widely commented upon. We know from the PIAC reports that there are all kinds of issues with revenue management. So even though we set up one of the best regimes in terms of legislation and institutions, I mean, it's not working. So the, the, the culture of governance is a problem for national benefits from the, from the oil sector. Gas has become an important source of generation, but people who are well-known, well-versed in the industry will tell you that the delay even was a result of all kinds of infighting. Uh, as far as hard minerals are concerned, Ghana pioneered the reforms on the continent, which became the broad basis for uh, the liberalization of the mineral sector. The next slide that I have takes a quote from the um, World Bank 1992 report of strategy for Africa mining, which basically set the defining paradigm that rather than be interested in development for your minerals, we should focus on revenue. So it is not an accident that across Africa, 
there's a revenue focus. But even that revenue focus, in practice, the returns are very poor. In the Ghanaian case, a number of steps taken by different governments have undermined our revenue earning you know, possibilities from, 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 uh, from, from minerals. There's a huge focus on gold to the exclusion of other minerals which could be of development value to the country. Take clay, for example, and its value in, in buildings. Nobody talks about it. When you go to the Minerals Commission website, there's a lot of gold information, very little information on anything else. Um, and the language all the time is investment attraction. The focus is on large-scale foreign direct investment, very little interest in domestic, artisanal, and small-scale mining. There's a presumption that any mineral of commercial interest to a foreign investor should be mined, irrespective of the possible externalities and maybe possible alternative land use choices, because there's not a rigorous engagement with alternative land use choices. Professor Akilakwasoya has written many articles on poor negotiations which have influenced the returns that we get from these sources. Just to show you how bad it can get, Professor Sawyer resigned from his post as chair of a committee which was trying to renegotiate existing mining contracts. When in the middle of those negotiations, the government took what we can describe as the worst revenue uh, fiscal regime and made it a general regime for the country. And now let me explain this a bit because it's important. At the height of the commodity boom, the government raised the, the royalty rate to 5%. Created a, yeah, created a, uh, uh, raised it to, to, to 5% from 3%. At that time, Goldfield, Newmont, which had a terrible, the worst possible agreement, which was a complete outlier with 30-year stability clauses and so on, you know, a ridiculous royalty rate and so on. That contract had been renegotiated by a committee led by Professor Sawyer. It had brought it closer to the main legislation, but it was still below. The minister, the, the government decided, the NDC government at the time decided to make this rate the general rate and subverted the 5% by providing a formula where they created bands that if gold prices were within a certain band, then you can get, you know, uh, you can pay the lower, higher royalty. But if the effect was that all the companies ended up paying the rate that Newmont was paying, which was a bad rate, which was outside the frame, but had to be kept there because of the separate history of the, of the, uh, uh, of the agreement. So this focus on revenue itself and also the, the incentives regimes that we give create a problem. If you take when Anglo-Gold Ashanti was rebuilding the Obuasi mine, at that time, proven reserves, according to the company, it's one of the oldest gold mines in the world, there are virtually any risk associated with the redevelopment. The government offered gold fields a very large you know, uh, fiscal discount. 
as uh, I don't know why they did, but clearly the lobbies were very effective. We went to Parliament, and uh, the committee had maneuvered us in terms of their procedure, so that we could not have a debate with the Deputy Minister of Finance, who happened to be the Minister, the MP for Obuasi at the time. I've used these examples to show that the expected benefits of the minerals regime in terms of revenue contribution have been problematic. The other areas of impacts, you know, beneficiary communities, of course, have got their own problems, but this is not the time to, 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 to dwell uh, on them. Now, what is clear from this is that as far as the core pillars of commodity export is concerned, there has been very little linkages development between those sectors and the rest of the economy. But the commodity boom in the period, of course, has supported government's ability to borrow, as I said earlier. And of course, this, we know there are some moments when these led to some, the, the, being able to borrow has led to some scandals, like the STX scandal in the uh, mills period. The, uh, there was a, and also there was a the big deal that was signed with the Chinese servicing. And the revenue expectations have been fairly, uh, returns have been fairly limited. And if you put alongside that the export of the earnings of the companies, you can argue that the returns have not been great. Now, I think it's important to inject at this point politics and governance and how the, these choices and possibilities are connected with the, the regime choices and also how institutions play their roles. The government has told us that the current crisis is due to the Ukraine-Russia war and COVID-19. To the extent that it is referencing international economic factors in relation to a commodity-dependent country, there's some truth in it. Because if you look at all the data, developing countries have had problems. But as we have all come to accept about COVID. Your pre-existing, your underlying condition determines whether you live or you die. So our underlying condition before COVID and the Ukraine COVID war predisposed us to almost dying. Countries don't die, fortunately, they go bankrupt you know, they can't borrow from the international capital markets and so on and so forth. Inflation, but they don't die. They live to go back to the IMF another day. Now, this crisis, actually, I think we should see it in political terms also as a crisis of legitimacy, not only for the government, because things have been building up in terms of people's feeling that electoral politics, I won't use the word democracy, 
electoral politics has not delivered to them. They have seen the emergence of a stratum, or we can say strata, because it's not simply the political class, but there are layers in society who are beneficiaries, you know, uh, of, of these uh, model. And basically, what we have, what we have had, which has been growing progressively worse, is really a narrow electoralist definition of democracy. Okay? With an implicit compact between the two main parties on regime alternation. Although the contest is getting uglier and uglier as, you know, people try to break the eight. Okay? So we are getting into, and of course, the march worship foot soldiers. They get cramps, but they are available as the shock troops to enforce what basically has become, you know, a contest among two, among, uh, two, basically two institutions of patronage which put themselves out periodically to be selected by Ghanaians to rule. But if you want to use an ugly image, in neighborhoods, criminal gangs also take control and they war among themselves for periodic alternation. I'm not saying we've got to that point, but the gap between the political class and society has been widening. And some of the more recent things show how far this gap is widening. Many people, I'm sure, were horrified when the Minister of Defense came out to defend the assault on Ashaman by the military. This is somebody who swore to uphold the Constitution. The President spoke soon after that. Not a word about it. And the Minister of Defense wrapped salt into our wounds by informing us that actually the pay of the security services had been tripled because a hungry soldier presumably will remove him from power. What about us who live in the country? For me, that's the most egregious example of the, the loss of touch with reality. And we've, we have versions of this uh, kind of thing. Some time ago, the chair of the Council of State summoned some members of the district assembly to his palace and made them to kneel down because they are not voted for a government nominee to be district chief executive. Soon after that, the president attended his 50th instrument anniversary, and they had a good time. You know. And where we have got to now, in terms of the leadership and governance failures, which created the underlying conditions for COVID to take the nation down, didn't start here. It's been building up. Many, 
most of the time, of course, the reason why people choose, people vote, is because they are fed up with the ancient regime, not because they are looking forward to very much. So this crisis of governance and of legitimacy is not only about this government. It is beginning to go to the root of people's faith you know, in, the, in the Constitution. And it's an important thing to, to pay you know, uh, uh, attention to. And I think that is as much a part of the dominant paradigm now as much as the commodity export dependence. Because the choice to govern it in a particular way perpetuates it and creates winners and losers. And there's not, whilst there's a lot of a rhetorical interest in value addition, in this and that, it's a lot of crony decision making. It's a lot of crony decision making. I mean, the idea that leading members of a ruling party can say some people cannot get access to public resources because they don't belong to the ruling party. It's a scandal. But increasingly, this is becoming the norm. So really, this model, with all these limitations, clearly works for some. Which is why I'm saying that the governance has become a dimension of the paradigm. Now, there's a social base for it. But it's very clear that if you look at what I've been saying to date, without regime distinction, there's a core commitment by the two leading parties to the same project. One says, but if I return to my, the economic core of my presentation, the um, crisis of the model has been occurring cyclically. 40 years on, we do not have the transformation which took some of the countries we like to point to a shorter period to reach. One day I was driving on campus and I saw somebody with a st sticker on his car. Ghana needs its own, its own Lee Kuan Yew. You know. um, but what that shows, of course, is that when it comes, I mean, the historical record shows that it is not a question of authoritarian or democratic leadership. In both contexts, changes are possible. Korea, which of course was authoritarian in its transition period, has liberalized politically. China has become the second biggest uh, economic power in the world with an authoritarian regime which is committed to, uh, to the, has done a lot to lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and is able to lend to everybody from the United States you know, to, to, to Ghana. Um, so we clearly, the past 40 years, raises questions about the viability of this model as a vehicle for change, which is why it seems to me that the point about the need for a paradigm shift is very clear on the historical record. That historical record contains also the seeds of the changes that are needed, which also are reflected in some of the shifts which have been taking place around the world in terms of people seeing the limits of neoliberalism. But of course, 
in the, in, in the global north, they have substantial public resources. They are not uh, primary commodity export dependent. Uh, so the US Fed can print money, which we will put in our reserves, raise interest rates, which immediately drive up our debt, but debt uh, servicing problems and so on. Um, but I think, broadly speaking, going back in some regards to the past and relearning lessons that we hastily forgot, I think are important. In all the countries where transformation has taken place, the market is important, but the state has a driving role, not simply as a facilitator, but also as an actor. And I think in our countries where capital accumulation in domestic hands is limited, the state needs to have an important role in, 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 this, in this project. We need to create the means of financing our development. It doesn't mean that FDI doesn't have a place, but FDI should fit into a project, not the presumption that liberalized FDI flows on their own would have a transformative effect. A country like China, they periodically changed the conditions for FDI flow into particular sectors because the thing fitted into a plan and they were monitoring and fitting. But what this thing shows also is that you need certain quality of institutions to be able to do this monitoring, tracking, and oversight. Needless to say, presumes a certain political leadership with a supportive base in society, which points to the situation that the two dominant parties as currently constituted and led, are they fit for purpose? That, I think, is an important question we need to pose. But I think at the heart of all this, if we come back to the, uh, to the real sectors, a key lesson from everywhere is the importance of building linkages. Linkages across sectors linkages within sectors. That way, you have a, a project which allows all your institution building, your investments and things to be uh, connected. Together what I said earlier about the, 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 the state. I just want to give an example, an example of uh, an African idea on linkages. As you know, there are many African development frameworks that have been show, thrown up over the years. Lagos Plan of Action, Alternative Framework for Structural Adjustment, you know, IDA, African uh, Industrialization, uh, uh, F, CFTA, there are many. But one which focuses on a productive sector is the African mining vision. Developed at the height of the commodity boom, when many countries realize that actually their expectations from the boom were not being fulfilled because of the bad agreements that they assigned. I remember I was in a meeting in Addis in 2008 where I was invited to speak to the uh, experts meeting. And the Ghana minister got up, I was in a very radical mood. We are not getting enough from our mining contracts, we have to revise them and so on. So the only came out of that. And at the center of it is the recognition that you need to build linkages. 
you need to diversify. And I think it offers us some lessons that can be applied to agriculture in particular. Because from there, how you, you do your financing, your infrastructure, your human resource development, which institutions matter, all of them you know, can fit into a plan. And of course, which minerals you develop because it will contribute to your development as opposed to minerals of interest to foreign investors. All these things are implicated. You can ask the same of any of the real sectors uh, of, 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 of production. I want to use, in closing, one humble mineral to illustrate the point I'm making about politics, linkages, constituencies. Ada has the best salt endowment in West Africa. Since 2020, Adan has been a zone of conflict because the government took a decision to give the whole lagoon. To give the whole lagoon to one firm. If you look at previous government reports on Adar, one thing they were clear about, it will be a political disaster and also economically not the best choice to give the whole lagoon to one firm. The reason why this choice has led to conflict is very simple. The Adan people for years, generations, salt has been the main choice of livelihood. It's a very poor area in terms of farming and so on. As a result of the decision of previous governments to allow access to large-scale firms, conflict broke out. So the PNDC took the lagoon into trust for the people of Adar and carried out a very extensive consultation with the local communities brought in experts and developed something called the master plan for salt development in Ghana with Adan as a centerpiece. That scheme was going to allow small-scale salt producers to coexist with large-scale salt producers in a public-private scheme with infrastructural investment by the government, you know, uh, harbors and so on and so forth, so that the salt, its potential as a source of you know, raw material inputs into industry as a source of livelihood for local people, becoming a kind of a rural growth pole in that part of the country, a source of public revenue, local enterprise development. All those things were in that master plan. It has never been implemented. As successive governments tried, again, the political cliques to see advantage. President Akufuado used the powers given to the government in the uh, uh, nationalizing legislation, PRDC Law 287, to give the lagoon to McDonald and his company, Electrochem, with the support of a few chiefs. Now, if you look at the business plan that this company presented, alongside the master plan. Frankly, it's a joke. 
And yet, not only part of the lagoon, but the whole lagoon has been given. Just to compound the problem. The Mineral Investment Fund, Mineral Income Investment Fund, sorry, which went to set up, its main business seems to be to launch the aborted Ejapa deal. Since then, it's been looking for relevance, has announced that it is going to invest public money in this project, which is a subversion of a more democratic use of these resources. As we are speaking, a year ago, Radio Adan, which has been speaking out for the communities, was attacked for opposing the, the, the leases. And the police have been very active against those who oppose the scheme. And as we speak, the lead journalist in Radio Adan basically is a victim of persecution, having been accused of uh, uh, defaming you know, the owner of Electrochem. He's been remanded in custody for misdemeanor. For me, this story is a combination of how political power used in relation to public resources for private gain to the exclusion of the possibilities of using a resource like that with transformative potential, which will help us break out of the commodity export dependence. And that microcosm we can find in many other situations in the country. Thank you very much.